0: Welcome to the Making Sense podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with David Edmonds. David is a writer and philosopher and the author of several books. The most recent is Parfit, a philosopher and his mission to save morality. And that is the topic of our conversation. As many of you know, Derek Parfit was a philosopher I greatly admired. As you'll hear, I almost interviewed him near the end of his life, but. Um, My timing was terrible. We talk about Parfit's place in philosophy, his work on identity, time bias, the non-identity problem, which he actually discovered, quite interesting, population ethics, and the so-called repugnant conclusion, the ethical importance of future people, effective altruism, moral truth, and other topics. Anyway, it was fascinating to talk about Parfit and his work with someone who knew him, so now I bring you David Edmonds. I am here with David Edmonds. David, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: So you have written a, a wonderful book. You've actually written two wonderful books, uh, although we'll focus on the most recent. You may have written more books than that, but uh, and they may all be wonderful, but I've read two of them. Uh, the the recent one is about um, one of the most interesting philosophers of our time. I think it's almost uh, surely an objective statement. The book is about Derek Parfit, titled "Parfit: A Philosopher and His Mission to Save Morality." And um, the other book that I loved, which I believe you co-wrote, was uh, Wittgenstein's Poker, uh, which is about a, a famous and maybe semi-apocryphal encounter between. Wittgenstein and and, um, Karl Popper, which um, maybe we can touch on. But I I want to, we'll we'll focus on Parfit. But before we get there, perhaps you can describe your background in philosophy and and just the the kinds of things you have focused on and and maybe your connection to Parfit.
1: Gosh, well, my background in philosophy is that I studied it. So I did what's called PPE at Oxford, which is philosophy, politics, and economics. And then Mm -hmm. I did a two year postgrad degree called the BPhil, which back in the 70s was kind of the route into teaching. And then after that, you'd, it was then required that you had to have a PhD as well. And then I went off and did other things, went into journalism, but I had a kind of philosophical itch and so started a, a PhD, which I did, I guess, about, well, in the early 90s, I think. And my supervisor for my BPhil, was a chat we're going to talk about Derek Parfit. And my B was on obligations we have to future people. So these are people who are not yet born. And then I did the PhD later. And my supervisor for my PhD was a very good female philosopher called Janet Radcliffe Richards, who went on to become Derek Parfit's wife, married Parfit at a later stage. So when I wrote the biography, I was sort of well connected. So I, I, I knew both Derek. And Janet, which was fortuitous for writing the book.
0: Yeah, I I never met Parfit. I almost interviewed him. I, I mean, my timing was just bad. I reached out to him at the end of uh, twenty sixteen, and we set up a um, an interview that was going to be. I think it was going to be. It was going to be written. I, I wasn't yet podcasting as regularly as I am now, and so we were we were going to have a written exchange, and then i believe his wife got sick and then at, at some point he was unwell and actually it was, it was interesting toward the end of your book you speculate as to whether or not he had dementia we can talk about his what was peculiar about him throughout his life but he actually i, I should say he he in this email he did describe himself as having showing signs of dementia to me so i, I that i thought i assume that was common oh. knowledge
1: no, not at all. So I'm very, very interested in that. He mentioned that to one person I interviewed, and I was slightly sceptical, because Janet didn't think he did, and he didn't tell it to anybody else. So you're, you are a second source. Yeah. So that, I, that I is interesting. Interesting. And, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you did extremely well to even sort of get him to engage with you, because, as we might go on to discuss, by this stage, he was very unwilling to, have, to be interviewed and to kind of as it were he would he would have seen it as a kind of a slight waste of his time because he wanted to focus on research and writing and i tried to get a podcast interview with him as well and he t- he turned that down he was more willing to engage in a in a written interview because then he could make sure that he didn't make any errors he was a perfectionist he didn't want to make any mistakes so if he had a chance to revise and edit his answers that would Make him happier, I think, than 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 doing a, yeah. a a a verbal interview where he might fear that he would say the wrong thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really consider it one of the great missed opportunities for me because I, I just love his work. Uh, although, like many who love his work, I, I can't say that I have read all of his last book, which is fifteen hundred pages long. And for some reason, I you know I it may just be due to length, but I also I just got sidetracked while reading it, even though I'm. Quite sympathetic with what he was attempting there. I aspire to get back to it and, and finish it. But um, his first book, Reasons and Persons, you know, many of us I think appreciate as some kind of masterpiece. It's not a. It's structured strangely, and and I, I, it seems like it probably could have become an even better book based on some form of, of editing. I don't know who who would have forced Parfit to edit it. But there's something. Really otherworldly about the book. It's like a, you know, it strikes one as written from a like a, you know the point of view of someone coming from outer space and just manufacturing thought experiments by which to understand human morality. Uh, it's a very odd but brilliant book. Did you know Parfit before he published that, or you you came to him after he?
1: No. So so the book is published in. 84, mm. and I study with him in 87, and mm. I think I bought Reasons and Persons in 1986, which is when the paperback came out. So he gobbles, I gobble that book up. I, I, I think, like you, it's a work of genius. And in fact, that's widely acknowledged. I mean, even the people who are his philosophical enemies, he had very few actual enemies, but his philosophical opponents, even they acknowledge that this is an extraordinary work of philosophy. and and. What I didn't realize until I was writing the book was that it wasn't supposed to be one book. He was working on lots of books at the same time, and then he had this crisis when, in 1981, the college that was his home, which was All Souls College, which is this college where there were no undergraduates, there were no, there's no teaching at all, the, uh, the people who are based there are purely there for research, they were threatening to throw him out because he hadn't managed to produce one book in 14 years. And so they say they give him an extension to his fellowship, but they say he's got to produce a book by 1984. And what he does is he throws everything together. And what was potentially going to be several books turns out to be this strange mishmash. And it covers a whole variety of things. Most famously, there's a huge chapter on personal identity, Mm. what it is that makes me the same person. I am now to the person I will be at the end of the interview and the same person I am now to the person I was when I was 5 years old and the person I will be when I'm 85 years old inshallah and then there's a huge section which was the section that at the time most interested in me which was on future people and he basically invents this whole subgenre of moral philosophy until then there was nothing that we now call population ethics and it's it's a, a, an area of philosophy that looks at our obligations to future people and puzzles about how many people we want in the world, whether we care about total well-being or average well-being. And he comes up with these ingenious puzzles. And even, what, what are we with, sort of 40 years on at least, 40 years on roughly, even now, when people write about this area of philosophy, basically Parfit is the template. I mean, people are yeah. responding to Parfit.
0: So I want to get into to many of those specific Problems. But generally, what would you say his place in philosophy is now? I mean, how would you describe him as a, a member of the pantheon of recent great philosophers?
1: Well, he divides people. So I'm a Puffetian. I'm a fan, so you're going to get a biased view. And I share the view of lots of very many philosophers and very many top philosophers, which is that he's one of the great moral philosophers of the 20th century. I wouldn't necessarily go as far as some and say he's the greatest moral philosopher since John Stuart Mill, but some very serious philosophers make that claim. But he's not like Wittgenstein in the sense that people who don't like Wittgenstein's philosophy, nobody dismisses Wittgenstein. But there there are philosophers who think that he does moral philosophy in completely the wrong way. And especially the later work was going down a cul-de-sac when he tries to prove that morality is objective. He's desperate to prove that there are moral facts so he divides people but that there are many people like me who think he's definitely one of the greats in moral philosophy of the past hundred years
0: yeah well i'm very sympathetic with trying to prove that there are such things as moral facts and i know what sort of pushback one gets when one goes down that path and that's that he focused on that more in his his uh, last book which is really three large volumes uh, on what matters and perhaps we'll get there as well i guess but Just one more general question about him before we get into his areas of philosophical focus. What do you think the the significance of his psychology was for his philosophy? He really did strike me, even just without knowing anything about him personally, and there's a lot in your book that is revelatory as to what sort of person he was, but just reading Reasons and Persons, I felt I was in the presence of a neuroatypical philosopher. And there were many of the advantages of that book seemed to me born of a truly atypical angle of attack on all the questions he was touching there. And, you know, so I always, without having any evidence for it, I always thought he was someone who, who must be, uh, you know, on the autism spectrum to some degree. I, I, know, I know you entertain that hypothesis in the book and, and are uncertain as to where you come down. But um, let's talk about that. And maybe it's true of we could bring in Wittgenstein here too because he's he also struck me insofar as I think I know anything about him from reading Ray Monk's biography and some other secondary work. He he struck me as neuroatypical as well, and so much of of what is interesting about his thought could be born of that.
1: Yeah. So I think your instincts are right. I think both Wittgenstein and Parfit were neuroatypical. There were lots of interesting similarities between them, and there were lots of interesting differences between them. And one is, Derek Parfit was just a lot more of a benign character. So yeah. Wittgenstein went round trying to persuade everybody to give up philosophy, and I think he damaged quite a few lives because there were people who were potentially good philosophers and would have would have had an interesting, successful academic life who he persuaded to give up the academic life and go and work with their hands, go and do manual work. And as I say, I think that was very damaging to them. Whereas Parfit was quite the opposite. Parfit tried to persuade everybody to give up anything and move to philosophy because he thought philosophy was basically really what mattered. But they were very you know, atypical, I think. The the big puzzle in my book, the, the, the puzzle I really wanted to resolve was that I thought I knew Derek when i started but then i started researching his early life and his early life is extremely rich he's got lots of interests he he starts off as a historian he's interested in music he's interested in sport he plays chess he seems to have a kind of social circle he dabbles in student journal- journalism he's a debater he has a very rich life and yet, and, and yet slowly he sheds all that and then in the second half of his life, he really becomes a duomaniac. He, he has two interests. One is philosophy and the other is photography. And every year he goes to the, t- the same two cities. He goes to Venice and he goes to what was then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. And he photographs the same buildings. <laughs> he goes there at dawn, mm-hmm. he goes there at dusk, and he photographs the same buildings every single year. And uh, what puzzled me was how Derek. Turns from this sort of earth from early Derek to later Derek, and also which was the real Derek, which was the authentic Derek, as it were and it 's an ironic question, of course, given that he spends much of his life worrying about what it is that makes us the same person, and I was puzzling about what it was, which was the as it were essence of of Derek, and he rejects the idea that we have an essence, but I came to believe that the later derek was was really the more natural Derek that once he got into this Strange institution, All Souls, and he didn't have to socialise. He could just focus on his work. I think that was the happier Derek. That was the more content Derek. But you ask about his the relationship between his his, as it were, his neuroatypicality and his philosophy. I mean, I think there are some interesting parallels. He was essentially a consequentialist, especially in his early philosophy. That's very strong. So he believed that what matters were the consequences of our actions. And if you look at his personality, his dispositions, they were very consequentialist, just to give you one example. So, for example, he would often burst into tears when he read or heard about the suffering of distant strangers. If you told him about the, what happened in the trenches of the First World War, he would stop and he would cry and be unable to carry on. And yet he felt very weak obligations. To his nearest and dearest. And, and, And that's evident when later on, you know, his friends invite him to weddings and he says he hasn't got time because he's got to work. And again, that's sort of in line with a consequentialist mentality that sort of everybody matters equally. We don't necessarily have strong special interests with any particular people. And I think consequentialism came extremely naturally to him. And that is one link with his with his m- Newell atypicality.
0: Mm. Yeah, there's one story to touch on the, f- the um, mania for photography uh, for a moment. There's one story in the book which I think exemplifies what a peculiar person he was, because um, perhaps you can tell the story where there's, there's some photo, I forget of which building, that he took enormous pains to get exactly right, and then one of his students comes and admires it, and maybe um, perhaps you can take it from there. But the, the where this story lands is again, it just it's, it's so strange. It's, I mean, I, I can't imagine behaving in this way.
1: The philosopher is, I think, his first PhD student, a very good philosopher called Larry Temkin, and Larry is in his Derek's office in or Derek's set of rooms in All Souls in Oxford, and he's admiring this photo that Derek has taken of. I think it's the Radcliffe camera, sort of outside, outside Derek's room, beautiful, beautiful building. And as you say, Derek just didn't take photographs. What he did was he would take the photographs and then he would send them. This was in the days before Photoshop. He would send them to a production company and he would spend thousands of pounds back in the 70s and 80s. He would spend all his savings, basically, on touching them up. He would send them off and he would say he wanted a bit more pink. And they would come back, and the shade of pink was not quite right. And he would send it back to have it adjusted. And this would go back and forth multiple times, a very, very expensive process, till he got the perfect shot. And Larry was there one day, and Larry said, "Oh, I love that. It's beautiful, beautiful photo." And Derek says, "Derek said, well, you have it then." And Larry says, "I can't take your that photo. That's absurd." And Larry goes off home, and at that stage he's in Houston. I think he's at Rice University. And sometime later, Derek has been invited to give a lecture at Rice University, and he turns up, and he opens his suitcase, and he says, Larry, I've got a present for you. And he's scrunched up this incredibly beautiful photo that cost thousands of pounds to perfect. He's kind of scrunched it up in his suitcase, and he hands it over to Larry. And Larry is just appalled, of course, by the way Derek has treated this photo. But I guess for derek, he'd he'd achieved perfection, and that was what mattered. But Larry then has to spend another few thousand pounds trying to iron out the creases. and and I think he he's still got the photograph to this day, and they've done everything they can. he got he got the top professionals to work on it, But there's still the sign of a crease where Derek had scrunched it up in the briefcase. Yeah. so that, that's the story,
0: yeah. so uh, everything up until the, the 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 final scene is, you know, idiosyncratic, but Amazing and you know compatible with you know every uh, ethical norm and and psychological norm we might want to hew to, but the scrunching up part is just bizarre, right? It's like a, it, there's yeah. like a lack of it's either a total lack of awareness or I mean there's just something very peculiar about a mind that would do that.
1: So so can I tell you about a story I, I have in the preface, which is a similar kind of story because it's totally utterly baffling. And to this day, I can't work it out. So w- what happened was that back in 2014, I wrote an article about Derek and Janet, because a magazine in the UK called Prospect Magazine had named both of them as the top to, in the top 50 public intellectuals, or no, actually intellectuals in the world, top hmm. 50 intellectuals in the world. And I wrote to Prospect, with whom I had a relationship, and I said, did you know they knew, know, knew each other quite well? In fact, they were married, and they said, no, we didn't know that. And I said, I'll I'll, I'll write you an article about their sort of interesting relationship, which was very interesting. (laughs) And they said, fine. So I I got Janet and Derek to agree. And I went to Janet and uh, Janet's house in North London. And Derek was there. And I was interviewing them. And I was taking notes. And sometime later, I I completed the article. And I sent the article off to to Janet and Derek just to fact check it, because I wanted to make sure I hadn't made any errors. And I was walking with my wife somewhere on a hill and I glanced at my mobile and Derek said, uh, I mean, I can't remember the exact words, but dear David, thank you very much for the article, but uh, you're not going to like the contents. I'm afraid you can't publish it. So I was very upset. I'd spent a long time on this article. I rushed home and I looked at the attachment he sent and there was a list of, I don't know, two dozen, three dozen errors that I'd made in it. And I started going through them. and the first one was not in the article, and nor was the second, and nor was the third, nor was the fourth. And I just couldn't work out what was going on. And then I realized that what I'd done was that I'd sent Derek my notes that mm-hmm. I'd been taking while I'd been in Janet's house when I was interviewing them. And what is so, you know, I, I, to this day, I can't fathom what he was thinking nobody could have thought that was an article. It didn't have a, a title. It didn't have a beginning. It didn't have an end. It didn't have a middle. Mm-hmm. It had half sentences. Mm-hmm. It was impossible to believe that this was a finished article in any way. And yet, because I'd said it was the article, Derek thought, well, it must be the article and, and had <laughs> com- commented on it. So it's a similar story to the photograph story in the sense that one just doesn't know what to make of it.
0: Yeah, it's, um, I don't mean to be you know, invidious. When I keep returning to this phrase, but it does kind of cry out for a neurological explanation, yeah, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so.
0: Okay, let's talk about the most interesting problems he tackled. You you mentioned a few. I think identity is close to the top of the list, and then there's the the famous non identity problem, which which is very interesting and and has interesting implications for ethics. What were well, Parfit's insights? around the topic of identity.
1: Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, what he was interested in was what it was that makes us the same person over time. It sounds like a very abstract philosophical question, but actually it has quite deep consequences. And his, I guess he had a few insights, but the first was that there was no essence of us. We were constantly changing, our body was changing, we were losing memories, we were gaining memories. There was no essence of us. I mean, if you're a religious believer, then you believe in a soul, and you think that soul is immutable. And so you've got an answer to what it is that makes a person the same person over time. They have the same soul. But if you are secular, if you reject the idea of a soul, then the question is, well, what is it that makes you, you? And Parfit said, well, there's no essence of you. Another insight was that identity, and th- th- this was an idea that he kept returning to throughout his life. He changed some of his views about identity, but this remained the same. Identity was not what mattered. What mattered was psychological continuity. So you, Sam, in 10 years' time, what matters, what should matter to you is whether you're psychologically continuous in 10 years' time to your current self. In other words, whether you have the same dispositions and the same memories and so on, he says identity is not what matters. And he has these various puzzles to kind of show that identity can't be what matters. He, he, one of them involves a he, he imagines that there's a, a, a three brothers and one brother is the body is dying and they move the two hemispheres of that per, of that brother's brain into the two different brothers so hemisphere a goes into brother 1 hemisphere b goes into brother 2 and they both think they're the same they still have they have exactly the same memories exactly the same dispositions and so on and the question is well which is the same which is the same brother which is which is identical to to the to the first brother and i mean it sounds it sounds science- Sci-fi, as it as it were, but but it's based on real life cases because with, with um, epileptic patients, what they've done is they've cut the brain stem and they've they've created a divide between these t- two hemispheres of the brain. And what they found is that you get these two spheres of consciousness. And I think there's there's one case where they found that you know the left hemisphere was kind of religious and the right hemisphere was mm-hmm. was, uh, was 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 uh, atheist or something like that. Yep. So, you, you get these two streams of consciousness. So Parfit's question is, well, which is the original brother? Now, it, it, it seems arbitrary to say, well, one of them is original. Why would one of them be original and not the other? So that seems to make no sense. But you also can't say that they're both identical to the original, because they're going to both go on and have different lives, and then they'll have different memories, and they will marry different partners, and so on. They can't be identical to each other. But if they're not identical to each other, they can't be identical with the original brother, because then they would all be identical with each other. So there, there's a case where we just don't know what to say about identity.
0: Yeah, I, I what... think the clearer case for me is the teletransporter case, which is the... I've, I've discussed this in various places before on the podcast, but um, people will be familiar with the concept, usually from, from Star Trek, where, you know, you, you know, beam me up, Scotty, is imagined to be a procedure where essentially the all of the information in, in the atoms in the body gets read out and encoded and, and sent at the speed of light to a, a new pod where the body gets reassembled atom by atom and everything is perfectly intact and the, and the person steps out of the what uh, Parfit called the, the teletransporter pod you know, on Mars, perfectly intact with all of his memories intact and, and you know, he, his last memories of just pressing a button in the pod on Earth and now he's stepping out onto the surface of Mars And you can go back and forth from Mars to Earth like that a hundred times, and you seem none the worse for wear. But quite ingeniously, Parfit imagines a few different versions of this procedure, which change our intuitions, uh, I think, fundamentally as to what's happening there. So that in the first case, when you just get sort of disassembled and reassembled with all the information preserved, there is this sense that. Basically, you, the person, have been, you know, albeit in a strange and you know potentially scary way, have been successfully sent back and forth between Earth and Mars, and you are still you. Uh, You remember everything about the process. You remember your life. You know, you you're not sick. You're not injured. Your spouse still recognizes you and finds you familiar. Everything's fine. But then Parfit asks us to imagine the version where there's a delay. I forget how he describes the, the, the reason for the delay but it, well, you so, you want to so, jump in here yeah
1: well yeah so, yeah. so what, what what happens is he, is he imagines that there's a copy of you on Mars but you as it were you're talking to yourself so that there's you back on planet earth and there's the copy of you and you know you you're about to kind of you're, to talk to to this copy and then you're told that you the the, the person on back on planet earth are, are about to, as it were to implode and your life is about to end and the, as the copy of you will continue. And he's asking us, I guess, what, is, what our intuitions are in that case. And Parfit's intuitions are, you are as good as preserved. You know, the fact that you are made up of a copy of you is irrelevant. You've got what matters. You've got psychological continu- continuity. You've got everything that counts. And you may f- f- think that you should be very upset about this. And probably lots of people would be very upset about this, but Parfit's intuitions are not like that. Parfit thinks you've as good as survived. This is this is really what matters to you: that you have psychologically survived. That you that that person up there is connected to the, the person that had existed on 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 planet Earth, and that's what you should care about.
0: Mm. Except if you let the person on Earth live any appreciable amount of time, then their timelines begin to branch and he, then you have to consider that person a different person.
1: Well, exactly right. So th- th- that comes back to the twins example. If they're both operating together, and then Parfit wants to say, well, the, the copy is as good as you, but then the question is, well, wh- is it identical to you? Well, if it goes on often has a separate life and, and has separate hobby, hobbies, and whilst you go fishing, it goes to play chess, clearly you two are different people. But in a way, that's that's two for the price of one as far as Parfit is concerned. You know, you're psychologically continuous in two different people and that, that's, mm. that's, that's doubly good.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think I, I land in a slightly different spot. I mean, I, when being transported is synonymous with being destroyed and reassembled, it just seems like a successful maintenance of psychological continuity without problem, right? But the moment there's a delay and you have you, you have you, you first make the copy and then you destroy the original. That seems like a copying and a murder. And it's it's hard to see it otherwise.
1: So Parfit changes his mind a little bit about this, but at least in reasons and persons, he thinks that the body itself is almost an irrelevant. So our cells are constantly dying and, and regenerating. If you cut off your nails, you're not changing your identity. If you lose a finger, you're not changing your identity. You, you, it, your body, as it were, might hold your mind, but it's the mind that matters. And hmm. so at least in reasons and persons, he doesn't share your intuitions about that. So he wants to say, uh, it, it's, you, know, you can call it murder if you want, it might feel like murder to you, but he's very happy to be there on Mars, continuing psychologically from the, the person that existed on planet Earth.
0: So where does he change his opinion about it?
1: Well, later on, he becomes more sympathetic to what's called animalism, which is the idea that we're, we're organisms. But he never goes all the way. I think he, what, he comes to believe that it's still psychological continuity that matters, but psychological continuity has to sit within a kind of organism. So if you, st- if you want to know what matters, well, it's still psychological continuity but the psychological continuity can only survive within an evolving organism so it's a subtle difference the the main thing is that his big claim that identity is not what matters persists throughout his his life and he mm-hmm. continues to believe that it's psychological continuity that matters and that has implications for how we should regard the past how we should regard the future so it has implications for example about whether whether we should hold somebody you know, guilty for something they committed a long time ago and don't remember. Mm-hmm. It has implications for thinking about whether we should save for the future because, you know, people do save for their pensions. They worry about what their lives are going to be like in 25, 30 years. Uh, they want to make sure that they're going to have a comfortable um, retirement. And if Parfitt's arguments are right, then the gap between us And our future and our past becomes greater, and the gap between us and other people narrows. So Mm -hmm. we're more connected to other people and less connected to our past selves and our future selves.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. The variable of time here is fascinating. He he has one thought experiment. I forget the title. Perhaps you you'll recall it. But he it's the um experiment where a person wakes up in the hospital and is told that they, um, they've either had a surgery or they will have a surgery in the next 24 hours. The nurse is unsure that she has to go check the chart. But if they had the surgery, they, they had a very long and painful variant of the surgery. And if um, you know there was some glitch and it, you know, it was 10 hours of torture, and if they're going to have the surgery, normally it just takes an hour and it's not, not all that bad and so I'll be back in a second, let me figure out which person you are, and so the person is left to wonder and worry whether he has already had a surgery, which he can't remember, or whether he will soon have a surgery, so this is like, this is on a Tuesday, say. so like, if you can correct me if I've messed any of this up, but um, so if if you wind back the clock, if you put the person at time zero before any of these surgeries, and And you asked him, which would you rather have, a 10 hour botched surgery that is a a harrowing ordeal, and then we give you a drug and you no longer remember it, or a much shorter uh, normal surgery that you also don't remember? Well, if it's a choice between 10 hours of torture uh, or something far more benign, well, obviously I want that thing that's far more benign. But if you tell me, well, the 10 hours might have happened yesterday. And the 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 more benign surgery is going to happen tomorrow. We we have such a time bias with respect to past and future suffering that the person is hoping he had the ten hour ordeal yesterday and just can't remember it, rather than the 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 more normal ordeal coming on the next day. And so what Parfit was suggesting is that you could have a, you could be unbiased with respect to past and future suffering and just recognize that the quality of your life is it's just the area under the curve of, you know, total experience. And you should just want less suffering under the curve in its entirety. And therefore, in this case, you should want to be the person who has the future surgery, not the past one. And he he, he seemed to find it inscrutable that we, we are so strongly weighting our future suffering and so fully discounting suffering in the past.
1: Yeah, you've described that brilliantly. I mean, I've nothing more to add to it, really. You've described it exactly right. He says that almost everybody, if they're lying in that hospital bed, wondering about whether they are the patient who's had the terrible operation that lasted all night, or the patient who's about to have a short and painful operation in the next 24 hours, almost everybody will wish that they are the person who's already had.
0: Who's already been tortured, yeah. Who's
1: already been tortured. And he is puzzled by that and thinks that perhaps it would be more rational to prefer to be the person who is about to have the short and painful operation. And towards the end of his life, time was something that really fascinated him. And, and he leaves behind sort of indications of what he wanted to work on. And we know what one of the things he wanted to work on when he died was he wanted to work more about on time? There were there were there were various issues he wanted to delve into more deeply. One one was free will. He was fascinated by the topic of free will, and he was very suspicious that any of us had free will. He wanted to mm-hmm. work more on that. He wanted to work more about time. He wanted to work more about something called the, which he called the sublime, a sublime experience, and what what it was to feel the sublime, uh, which he thought was the, the sort of the opposite of pain. And he wanted to go back and work a bit more on, 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 on future people and so on. But, but had he lived a bit longer, he, he died when he was only 74. Had he lived longer, I think we'd have had more writings from Derek on the subject of time.
0: Mm. So, what, what was the non identity problem?
1: Gosh. Okay. Well, I think the non identity problem is brilliant. And, and once I explain it, it will seem so obvious to you that it will, you, you'll wonder why on earth nobody had ever thought of it before and why it took Derek Parfit. Two millennia after the, the great kind of ancient Greek philosophers to come up with it. How come no philosopher had ever thought of it mm. before? So, uh, I, I should start with an example he starts with, which I think is a slightly awkward example because it, it feels a bit kind of sexist and classist somehow. But anyway, this is how Derek sets it up. He, he imagines that there's a 14 year old girl and she is wondering whether to have a child. Now, That might be bad for the 14-year-old girl. Let's put that issue to one side. We also think that it would be bad for the child. That if a a child is born to a 14-year-old mother, that's a bad start for the child. And so it would be natural to try and persuade the 14-year-old girl to wait 10 years or 15 years or whatever before she has a child. And And then the child would have a better start in life. I mean, that's the natural intuition. But Derek points out something, as I say, that is bleeding obvious. If the the 14-year-old girl has a child, so long as that child's life is not worse than nothing, that child won't regret being brought into the world. And if that 14-year-old girl waits for 10 years and has a child, she won't have the same child she will have an entirely different child. And so the question is, well, if she has a a child when she's 14, who has she harmed? It doesn't look like she's harmed anyone. She hasn't harmed the child who is born to the 14-year-old because that child's life is better than nothing. Now, normally, we think that morality must be about harming particular individuals. If I throw a stone at another human being and hurt that human being, I've done something wrong because I've hurt a particular human being. If I just throw a stone on the ground and it doesn't hit anybody, I haven't harmed anybody. I've done nothing wrong. What's wrong is when you harm a particular individual. That seems to be the basis of morality. But Parfit spotted that there are lots of areas where it looks like we've done something wrong. And in this case, the 14 year old girl having a child, where nobody is harmed. And he then extrapolates that to a whole series of of policies. So for example, think about climate change. We, if we did nothing about climate change, then several generations, well, in fact, probably not several generations, probably only two generations down the line, we're already feeding the effects of climate change, but two or three generations down the line, people are going to have very bad lives. There's going to be, there's going to be hurricanes, there's going to be typhoons, there's going to be droughts, there's going to be mass migration. The world is not going to be a happy place. But let's assume that although it's not a, a very happy place, Those lives are still better than nothing. Now, let's assume that we did something about climate change. For example, let's say we did something drastic. Let's say we said people could only drive on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays, or people couldn't fly planes. Now, if we did something drastic like that, that would affect who was born. Each of us is a product of a unique sperm and a unique egg. And if my mother had come home late on a particular day, or my father had been delayed for some reason, I wouldn't be here to talk to you today. I'm the product of a kind of unique union of sperm and egg at a unique time. If you did something drastic, like you you stop cars, then you would change who exists. I mean, and the way Derek says, puts it is, imagine that trains had never existed. Which of us would still be alive today? None of us would still be alive today because our lives have all been changed hmm. by by the invention of, of 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 the train.
0: I can't remember if you do this in the book or not, but I, I feel like you or someone imagined whether we would all exist if Hitler hadn't existed. Right? Like, how, how fully yeah. can we re- regret <laughs> yeah. Hitler well, if you know h- half the world wouldn't ex- would, would be different, would be peopled I, by it, different people?
1: Yeah, I had a very um, annoying <laughs> review of the book where the reviewer just just didn't understand the point. And I made exact the point that you made mm. that and I said, I wouldn't exist if Hitler didn't exist. And she said, well, your mum and dad, she wrote in the review might still have met each other. It's absurd. <laughs> I am actually a, the product of Jew, two Jewish refugees. They would work not for Hitler. They would not have arrived in England. They would not have met each other. There was no way I would exist if Hitler uh, hadn't existed. But that's true of almost everybody. I mean, he changes the whole world. So you yeah. wouldn't exist if Hitler hadn't existed. None of Nobody would exist if Hitler hadn't existed, because he changes the world. And actually, that makes it sort of that raises interesting questions, which maybe we shouldn't go into. But it raises interesting questions about about reparations and so on, Mm -hmm. because you know (laughs) Hitler did obviously uh, very bad things. But I owe Hitler my life, as it were. So (laughs) one has a complicated relationship with the past when one begins to think of it like that.
0: Yeah. So. So. uh, But back to the case Parfit's making here. So the, what is inscrutable about this, it was, as you said, we have this intuition that for something to be wrong, there has to be a victim. And, 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 the, and the idea that there's a category of crime called a victimless crime uh, has seemed to many of us to be just a logical contradiction. And yet here, Parfit is exposing these cases where something... There are better and worse options, and yet they're better and worse for no existing people because the people are are different.
1: Exactly. There is no one person for whom they are better or worse. But nonetheless, we can still make the judgment that if we do nothing about climate change, we've done something very bad. We can still make the judgment that the 14-year-old girl has made a mistake by having a child at 14 rather than delaying becoming a mother so the way he does that and it's very easy with with same number what he calls same number cases if you've got a choice between a person born at X time and a person a, a different person born at uh, a, a, a different person Y then the way to judge whether you should bring X or y into the world is well who has the better life so the reason why we should do something about climate change let's assume that if we got rid of cars and and, and and planes, it would help a great deal, but let's, assume, let's make the absurd assumption that it wouldn't affect the numbers of people being born. On that absurd assumption, the reason why it would be a good thing to do is because two or three generations down the line, the people who would exist will be better off than the people who otherwise would have existed had we done nothing about climate change. And that's how he solves the conundrum.
0: Yeah. In some ways, you can capture this by putting the phrase "identity is not what matters" to slightly different use here. It's just it, it, the identities of the people isn't what is relevant for the moral calculus. It's just the fact that there are people in each case, and in one case, the people are much better off.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, and I think both in his arguments about personal identity and his in his arguments about future people, he. Converges on a kind of consequentialist conclusion, which is it's it's the consequences that matter. We should we should prefer the better consequences rather than the the less bad consequences. In the ca- case of personal identity, because my future self has become less like me, as it were, than we thought, we we should be more interested in the lives of others. That's a consequentialist conclusion. Hmm. Um, it, when it comes to future people, we should prefer the outcome in which the people are better off. That's another consequentialist. Conclusion. So, lots of his arguments, although he comes at them from very different angles, have very similar conclusions.
0: Yeah, there's there's something very Buddhist about him. I don't don't know that he was ever aware of how reminiscent of Buddhism much of his reasoning is, but it's you know,
1: yeah, it's he he was he was. There's there's an appendix actually in Reasons and Persons where he draws a connection between his views on personal identity and his views on the self. And there's there's an anecdote in the. in the book about how a, a philosopher goes to it, Tibet, I think, or North India, and somehow they get a copy of They're talking about personal identity and the connection between Derek's views yeah, and Buddhist yeah, views. Yeah, yeah. And they give a, they give a copy to, to, of Reasons and Persons to this Buddhist monk.
0: The monks in, in Dharamsala, I think, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah.
1: yes. And, and, and then later on, the philosopher goes back and they, he discovers that uh, the, the monks are reciting or chanting extracts of reasons right. and persons <laughs>
0: yeah, I'd forgotten that yeah, that, that's a fantastic story okay, so let, let's talk about population ethics, as it's now called, and the repugnant conclusion, which was the again one of these found objects of philosophy that that he drove to on the basis of a, a very clever thought experiment, which um it, it's very hard to think about it. it does seem in some sense destructive of the whole enterprise of doing population ethics in a consequentialist way let's just describe it what what is the repugnant conclusion
1: right well some of the arguments to get there are quite complicated and sort of it helps to be able to draw diagrams which we can't do in a podcast but I'll tell you what the repugnant conclusion is the repugnant conclusion is Parfit's claim that for any set of people let's Say, there are, imagine there are 8 billion people on the planet who have, all of them, very happy lives. For any set of people like that, there must be a set of people much, much larger than that, um, maybe trillions of people, whose lives are barely worth living. They're just better than nothing. And that outcome is better than the outcome where there are 8 billion very happy lives. Now that seems an absurd conclusion. Parfit called it the repugnant conclusion. He felt it couldn't possibly be right because it's so counterintuitive, and yet he thought that there were arguments which suggested that it was the right conclusion to draw. And to the end of his life, he was trying to find a solution to the repugnant conclusion, trying to find a way out of reaching the repugnant conclusion. But but that's what it was. It was that for any set of people, there must be a much greater number mm. of people whose lives are barely worth living, which is a better outcome than, the, than than the first set of people whose lives are are very well worthwhile.
0: Yeah, well, I think that we can get people there without diagrams, although those diagrams in the book are surely helpful. But if you just imagine, if you imagine a billion people who are more or less perfectly happy, you know that that's one circumstance. And just imagine adding some more people who are who are not. Exactly as happy as the first billion, but they're still remarkably happy, you know, far happier than any average population on Earth today. Surely that is if moral value is in any way additive, right? If more is better in any sense, well then surely more good lives is better than the first or, billion.
1: Or, or at least if I can just interrupt, yeah. at least it's not worse. Right. It seems like you can't say that if you add a few happy lives, even if they're not as happy as the, the lives that already exist, if you add a few happy lives, you can't be making the universe worse. Uh, maybe you're not making it better, but you're not you're not making it worse, but you carry on, you're doing yeah. a very good job I, I think
0: well <laughs> I think I would push it a little further than that. I think it's I think most people will recognize it to be obviously better because then then if you don't recognize that, then you seem to be saying that uh you know the the average is the most important principle, and so if let's just rule this out in advance. So the, many people would be might be tempted to think that what we really care about is the average happiness. But if average is what concerned us, then a world in which there's one perfectly happy person and billions upon billions of, of extraordinarily happy people, but they're just not perfectly happy, well, that those billions have brought down the average so it'd be, it would be better just to have a world with one perfectly happy person and all those billions of wonderful lives can be annihilated to the advantage of the universe. That so you, seems you, crazy.
1: Yeah, you, and you can also do it the other way around as well. I mean, the average view is 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 bonkers because and the other way around, the flip side of that is you can imagine that there are a billion people whose lives are totally miserable, who are tortured the whole time. Mm. And then you imagine that you bring in another person who's tortured only six days of the week and the other day kind of scraps around. Well, according to the average view, you've improved the universe right. By, right. by bringing in this really horrible life because you've increased the average. That's yeah. obviously nuts. I mean, the so the average view makes no sense at all. Right. But, but, yeah, Okay. Back to you.
0: Okay, so now we're adding people. So we, we started with the perfectly happy people, and now we're, now we're adding billions upon billions of Again, extraordinarily happy people. I mean, the, the happiest person you have ever met on the happiest day in their life is barely as happy as the worst among these people, right? So this is just this is utopia, and it's getting bigger and bigger, and more and more people are being added, but they're a little bit less happy than the first people. And if you go down in this stepwise fashion, it's simply getting more lives that are better than nothing. But still, not quite as good as the the lives that preceded them. You can kind of travel down this staircase to the place where you started with the just giving the punchline of the repugnant conclusion, which is if it's purely additive, if you aggregate enough lives that are better than nothing, but minimally better than nothing, they will eventually outweigh a world where there are billions of perfectly happy people, right? So, which is to say. They're more, it's more it's of greater value, more important, you should be willing to tr- wave a magic wand and create that universe with these minimally uh, happy people over the 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 universe where there are a lesser number of perfectly happy people. And it just seems what when you when you look at the difference, you know, the the distance that has been traveled in, in value space between the perfectly happy life you know you know the hor- horizons of happiness that we can barely imagine to you know the the minimally positive life you know just better than nothing that's an extraordinary distance and it does seem repugnant to say that sheer numbers makes the the latter more valuable
1: so the reason why diagrams are quite helpful is because you've 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 missed out a stage there and 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 if you miss out that stage, there's a way to prevent the repugnant conclusion. You just say, well, if you're reducing those the quality of life of those who had fantastic lives, then you're doing something bad. If you had lives that were a maximum, let's say, of hundred, and that was the maximum you could get, mm-hmm. if you're reducing them to ninety nine or ninety eight, then you're doing something bad. But but Harford has a sort of interim stage. So he imagines that there are lives that are fantastic lives, hundred, and then you bring in lives that are fifty let's right. say a, a level of 50. Now as as we've agreed you can't be doing anything wrong there. Now imagine an, another universe where you bring everybody down to 90 you bring the top people down to, from 100 to 99 and you bring the people from 50 down to, up to 99. Okay? So the people who were only 50 were up to 99, right. the people who were 100 are down to 99. Now almost everybody agrees that that looks like a better universe because you've increased the total level of well-being or happiness or whatever you're and you've made it much more equal so both on egalitarian grounds mm-hmm. and on utilitarian grounds you've improved the universe then you get the next step which is you bring in some more people who are 50 and then the next step is you raise those 50 to 98 and you bring everybody from 99 down to 98 right and right. and that's how you end up with the repugnant conclusion so it is quite complicated but the logic of it seems completely robust and he couldn't Find a way of of stopping that chain. I, I should say that it's not the only argument for the repugnant conclusion. He has others. So one is the asymmetry argument. So he thinks that we should all agree that we shouldn't bring into the universe what he calls the wretched child. So the wretched child is a child who has a very short life, dominated entirely by pain, and who dies, you know, age three or four given the choice we shouldn't bring that person into existence we've done we, we've done something bad by bringing that person into existence but if we've done something bad by bringing that person into existence it seems very difficult not to argue that we've done something good by bringing in into existence a life which is better than nothing i mean you had that intuition already yeah. that that if we bring in a happy life we're doing something good not everybody has that intuition at all lots of people have the intuition that morality should be about worrying we, we, should, we should do the best for the people that exist. We have no responsibility to bring in lives. But Parfit says, well, if there's something wrong about bringing in the wretched child, there must be, surely, something good about bringing in the happy child. And uh, he can't really resolve that, that asymmetry. So that, that's another argument that drives us towards the repugnant conclusion. Because if there's a reason to bring in this one happy life, there's a reason to bring in another happy life and another happy life and mm-hmm. so on, and 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 that takes us down the route to the repugnant conclusion.
0: I forgot. Did he go so far as to say that that it's actually morally wrong not to bring in the next ha- happy life if you can, which is to say that you're you're you know you should have as many children as you possibly can. I mean, no,
1: there's... he did. He he didn't want to say that. He didn't want to say that. And but but he's he's stuck with this asymmetry. Say so he. he, he, he he thinks if he does say that, we're going to get into all sorts of problems, the kind of problems we've been talking about, but but then he has to resolve the asymmetry, and he has great difficulty r- resolving mm. that. So so he's kind of pushed in that direction, but he certainly doesn't want to say that we have an obligation, a moral obligation, to bring in more children.
0: Well, it really is, this is difficult to think about, because the, the, the problem of future people is hard to get your, your mind around, because for a few reasons, uh, Will, Will McCaskill... Gets into this in his most recent book, and much of effective altruism, you know, the the long termism component of it, is it takes future people and, and future states of present people as um its focus. And there's some strangeness here because, again, the, the the if you ask yourself what would be wrong in killing everyone on Earth tonight in their sleep painlessly, right? You can't say well. It's because of all the suffering you'd create. Because you'd create no suffering. In fact, you would remove the possibility of future human suffering because you've removed all people painlessly. And you wouldn't say you wouldn't have created lots of bereaved people because there'd be no people. But most people have an intuition that this would be a monstrously evil thing to do. And yet there'd be no victims of this evil. What you would have done, I mean, the, the the cash value of the the moral wrong here is you would have foreclosed the entire future of human happiness and creativity and beauty both its appreciation and its expression right so you would have you would have closed the door to all possible human good by ending the career of the species however painlessly tonight in our sleep and so if future people have value it is in the value of of you know all the good they may experience and if we should safeguard that future if future people are guaranteed to exist we have a moral responsibility to make sure that the world they inherit isn't an engine of misery right so we, we we're more determinative of their future states of suffering than we might want to admit right if we if we make the world 1% better each year for the next 50 years well then then the, you know 50 years from now our grandchildren will live in a in a much better world if we make it one percent worse for each of the next fifty years, they'll inherit some kind of hellscape. So we have this: the moment you posit these future people, we we have this immense moral responsibility, both for the good we don't want to foreclose, and both for the and for the suffering we don't want to plant the seeds of. And yet, it's hard for people to think about this as any kind of moral responsibility because these people, many of these people, are hypothetical, and they you know they they don't exist, and they. It's easy to persuade yourself that they may not exist, but if they don't exist, that is synonymous with something, with our having done something catastrophically stupid such that they don't exist, right? So either way, we have this immense responsibility. We have a responsibility not to behave so recklessly that the future doesn't arrive, the human future doesn't arrive. And if we assume the hu- human future is guaranteed to arrive because we're not so stupid as to, to foreclose it, we, more than anyone else, will decide its character.
1: Right. So Parfit has a few things to say about this. He's once asked, why would it be a tragedy if the human race ceased to exist? And he said, well, there will be no one left to listen to Mozart. And and he, he imagines in one of his thought experiments, he, he, he asks us this. He says, Imagine these three possible scenarios, A, B, and C. In scenario A, there's peace. In scenario B, there's a terrible war or famine. And of the 8 billion people on the planet, 7,900,000 are wiped out. Mm. And in scenario C, everybody is wiped out. And he says, most people believe that the difference between scenario A and scenario B is much greater than the difference between scenario B where 900,000 are wiped out and scenario C where 8,000,000,000 are wiped out. The difference between A and B is much greater than the difference between B and C. And in fact, this has been empirically tested and it is true. I think if you ask people this, they do say exactly that, that the difference between A and B is much greater than the difference between B and C. And Parfit thought that was wrong. Parfit thought the difference between B and C was much greater than the difference between A and B, and that's because, as you suggested, that if we carry on living, there potentially there are billions. You know, if we, we might go on in, inhabit different planets, who knows? There might be billions or trillions of happy human existence still to come. So the difference between B and C is huge. So another sort of you you say that they're sort of hypothetical people, which of course they are. They by their very nature, future people don't yet exist. But Parfit thought that just as it made no difference whether a person, let's say you were going to kill a person, it made no difference whether that person was in the next town or across the other side of the world. So spatially, it made no difference. So he claimed that temporally, it made no difference either. So he has a very nice example, very simple example, where he imagines that a child is walking through a wood and steps on, uh, you, dro- you, drop a, you drop a piece of glass and the, the child steps on it tomorrow and there's blood and the child is hurt and in pain. And that's obviously a bad thing. And now you imagine a different case where the glass remains buried under some leaves for a century and a child in a century comes along and steps on that glass and bleeds and is in pain. Parfit says, well, the fact that that child doesn't exist makes no difference to the morality of, of what's happened. It's just as bad if the child in 100 years steps on the glass as the child in uh, tomorrow steps on the glass. Now, what are the implications for that? Well, they're not as perhaps as radical as we think they are, because the future is uncertain. So although we may not want to morally discount for the future, although we may want to say, well, in 50 years' time, if somebody's hurt, that's just as bad as if somebody's hurt today, although we may want to dismiss that notion, or Parfit certainly does, we don't know what's going to happen in 50 years' time. We may have very good reason to privilege the present over the past, because the the, the present is much more certain, much more probable. Uh, the world in 50 years' time is full of uncertainty. Uh, we can't predict with a very great accuracy what's going to happen. It makes sense for us to focus on the present.
0: Yeah, there is a an analogy to to be drawn with respect to space, right? We, so, we much of our moral progress has come from our ability to, I think, in Peter Singer's terminology, to expand the circle of our moral concern. And much of that has to do with respect to space and, and just geographical remove from other people and, and cultural remove. So it used to be rather easy to ignore the, the suffering of people on other continents because they were so far away and, and so different from, from you that you just, you, how could you possibly care all that much? I think it was Adam Smith talked about uh, you know a person, if you told a person that they were going to have their pinky finger removed surgically tomorrow. They, would, they wouldn't sleep a wink tonight for, for fear of the consequences. But you tell them that you know, a whole generation of people has been annihilated by an earthquake and I think he said, I think it was China. It basically it doesn't change the character of your day apart from the few moments you spend marveling over it. And so, But we've learned to care more and more about distant people because we, we understand that geographical distance doesn't have any ethical content. And if, you know, someone were starving to death on your doorstep, it matters. The fact that you put that doorstep a thousand miles from your actual doorstep, uh, it should still matter. And it's just, you know, not, it's not to say that we, we don't um, discount our concern with respect to the location, but we really don't. It, it, given the, the agency to, to actually help, i.e. given the ability to, to send a check to an organization that can actually do the work of saving lives. People like Peter Singer and, and others would argue that there's it just has no moral force. You should you, you should do that thing and not be confused about geographical distance. Whereas with respect to time, we discount to an extraordinary degree, in part because the details of the future are still hypothetical. But even if they weren't, I think it's. I mean, there, there are certain things where we just know, you know, it's doing something catastrophically destructive with respect to the future. It's going to be bad, even if we don't know all the permutations of badness in advance, and we don't know exactly what technology is going to come to the rescue, we have good reason to believe it would be bad, and therefore we shouldn't do that thing, uh, or we shouldn't steal from the future when uh, we could actually, basically, you know, spending the, I guess climate change is a fairly clear case now. We just know there are, there are wise and prudent things we could do uh, that will affect future lives, and we can decline to do those things selfishly, and without much concern for the future. and strangely, even our future selves and the lives of future people who do exist get you know, hyperbolically discounted and you know that's bizarre. I mean our connection to our future self is more tenuous than would seem strictly rational and you know even to the lives of our the future lives of our children who may currently exist, we spend very little time thinking about what the world will be like when they're in their 50s and yet we have an enormous amount of leverage with which to affect the quality of, of their future lives.
1: Yeah, so I think Peter Singer thinks that existing moral intuitions are a hangover from our evolutionary development, and that when we were hunter-gatherers, of course, we didn't know what was going on in the next valley, let alone in, uh, across the Atlantic or at the other side of the world. And that now that we do know what's going on, and we can affect change, we have no excuse not to do so. And it may be that we are naturally, from an evolutionary uh, standpoint, we are sort of naturally short-termist. You know, it, it, it's it's quite plausible to believe that well, of, of course, we should care about the next meal, not um, not the meal in 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 a hundred years' time when we're not going to be around. So they both both these phenomena may have. Sort of evolutionary explanations. Parfit was linked to very important, in fact, to the the effective altruism movement. So they they very much wanted him on board, and they approached him in about two thousand and fourteen, I think it was. And and you know that there's this pledge about yeah. that they wanted they they asked people to give ten percent and to pledge ten percent of their salary to, to of their future salary. To people in, in desperate need. And Parvick was very happy to join the movement. He thought they were on the side of the angels, but he didn't like the wording of the pledge. And, it was, it, it, and he, he didn't like giving what we can. First of all, he said it shouldn't be called giving because he had this idea that we in the West were just extremely fortunate. We'd been born into lucky circumstances. And giving implied that we owned it somehow, that it was ours to give. And in fact, we didn't deserve it. He didn't like giving what we can, 10%. They ask us to give 10%. He said it's absurd to say that's what we can give. We could clearly give a lot more than that if we wanted, so why call it giving mm. what we can? He didn't like the fact that it was a, a, a pledge rather than a promise for reasons I couldn't mm-hmm. understand. Mm-hmm. But the crucial area the, the, uh, and, and, and where he has the most influence is at the time that he took the pledge, all the money was being devoted to development issues, poverty, global health, and so on. And Derek wanted to say it should be an option to donate for the causes of, of future people. So in a way, he's the godfather of long-termism. Mm-hmm. And you know, he didn't think very much about artificial intelligence. Lots of people are talking about artificial intelligence now. But he was very concerned with existential risk. He was very concerned about climate change, about future people. And he thought it should be an option that when you choose to donate your 10%, if you sign on to the, to the Effective Altruism movement, it should be an option that some of that money go to future causes. And indeed, they changed the pledge as a result of, of, of his proposal.
0: Podcast listeners will uh, find this familiar. because I've spoken about the pledge and, and my taking it and, and waking up being the, the first company to take it. They, they actually created a company pledge for 10% of profits. In response to my uh, my importuning of them on that point, but um, I, I agree with his criticism of the language, except for I, I find that the difference between pledge and, and promise
1: I couldn't, as, couldn't as, work as inscrutable it out. as you do, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, obviously, one could give more, and so it's so can is uh, has to be at least finessed in in the hearing.
1: Yeah, it was it was a battle between between philosophical purity and marketing. Yeah. is the way I put it. I mean, I yeah. think. In in marketing terms, it was very effective because 10% is clearly a lot of money. It's much, much more than most people give. And yet, although it's a great deal of money, it's doable. It's psychologically doable. And so as a way of expanding the movement and getting people on board, I think 10% is very effective. I mean, it's clearly, as Derek pointed out, and Derek took things very literally, it's not giving what we can.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll talk about this more I'm, I'm going to have Peter Singer on the podcast uh, oh. at some point this summer. But um, yeah the, the 10% figure is amazing because it's uh, it is as you say it's accessible to everyone. I mean 10% is just 10%, but it's much more than most people tend to give. And the, the strange thing about it is that at any level of wealth it can seem to most people like too much. Right if you're not making a lot of money well then then you really you can't afford to give 10% of the money you make away because you need all the money you're making but as you suddenly get out of the out of poverty and out of out of real you know economic necessity and you get some disposable wealth well then very very quickly almost immediately 10% seems like a lot of money and it's certainly a lot more than you see other people giving to important causes at at whatever level of wealth you're you're at you know if you're making $500,000 a year, well, you're not, you're not tending to meet people who, who, who are making $500,000 a year who are giving $50,000 a year of their, of their pre-tax earnings every year, year after year away to charity, because uh, that's, that's a lot of money. Um, so it's, it has this optical property of just never looking right until you finally just make the leap and realize all of the, the benefits of doing it in addition to the benefits that, you know, felt out in the world uh, on the basis of your giving.
1: Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I think percent does seem a lot of money to most people. And the effective altruism movement has come in for a lot of flack over the past nine months or so. It's had a very, mm-hmm. very, very difficult year for all sorts of reasons. There was the sang Bampton fried FTX fiasco, and there were other problems as well. But I think, you know, essentially, it's a well-intentioned Group of people trying to do the right thing i mean there there I think there's a set of interesting arguments about whether it does do the right thing, and that's to do with well what the consequences are of transferring money to these parts of the world. I think those are very interesting mm-hmm. empirical arguments, but I think from the standpoint of of intentionality, I think you know the vast majority of people in the effective altruism movement are to be applauded for their efforts
0: yeah yeah no i I share that and uh I, I when I when I think when I endorse effective altruism, I, I am en- endorsing not the not the narrow movement that's easily identified online, but more of the broader philosophy of just caring about the actual effects of of marshaling our our resources right. in, in specific right. ways and being as empirical and as rigorous as we can be on that front and, and responsive to to new information and new new data and new arguments. Um, you know, all the while, just back to the repugnant conclusion for a moment. I, I don't know if anyone has ever found a a satisfying response to it, and I haven't. I, I should do more research on this, but I've held out hope that it is something like a a philosophical illusion uh, akin to the paradoxes of Zeno, which are you know on their face see, can seem quite compelling, but we know them to be ridiculous. But it took some centuries for philosophers and scientists and in this case mathematicians to prove why they were ridiculous and, and need not be taken seriously. So to remind people, Zeno's paradoxes were of the sort that divided distance, you know, half and half and half again, such as to prove that, you know, if you shoot an arrow into a tree, it can never arrive because it first has to go half the distance and then half again, then half again, then half again. it never it can never make contact with the tree. Well, of course, we all know that arrows don't fly that way, and mathematicians who later learned how to sum the infinite series could tell you that math doesn't work that way. And yet, on its face, it seemed like this, okay, this is something we really have to puzzle over philosophically. How is it that anything gets anywhere? How is motion a thing if you know, we can't, you know, in any instant the arrow is still, and in any traverse of a distance, you go half and half and half again and never arrive? Do you think that the repugnant conclusion is amenable to some clever resolution of that sort where we just realize, okay, this is not even a thing, morally speaking?
1: Well, it's a good question. The solution to the Xeno paradoxes uh, are precisely what you say. You, you talk about, well, time doesn't work that way in, as it were, discrete chunks. But I mean, there were, there were more puzzling ones. like The bald man paradox is not so easily resolvable, which is when does a bald man Become bald. Clearly, that if you just remove one hair from mm. a, a fully-headed person, a very hirsute person, you haven't made that man bald. If you remove another hair, you haven't made that person bald. So, at what stage does that person become bald? Can one hair make no, any di- the difference? And it, it seems like one hair can't make any difference, and yet uh, you get a bald <laughs> yes, you get a bald yeah. you, you get a bald person. I, I and must then, say, I'm
0: I'm contemplating the, the bald man paradox every morning and every <laughs> yeah, afternoon. Yes. Yeah, well,
1: it, I, I, I I sympathize. I've been through that stage. Um, and, and and I've got to the end of the stage where I am definitely bald. But there, there, presumably, um, so there, was, there is a philosopher who thinks, well, there is a moment where you do become bald. It's just we don't know what, where, what that moment is. The the bald man paradox, a question about vagueness of concepts, is, right. is a very tough one logically. And it may be, maybe the repugnant conclusion is a similar kind of paradox that way. You know i it's something I tried to resolve in my b field dissertation. I wanted to say that it looks like when we go from a hundred to ninety nine and we we're, we're we're slowly working down the, the 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 kind of well-being slant the well-being curve, it looks like we're continuing to improve the universe, but in fact, we're losing things in that process that make life worth living that that, that is kind of essential to the good life, and that somewhere down that in the same way that the bald man eventually becomes bald somewhere along that slope we're going from a valuable life to 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 a life which is clearly less valuable it's very complicated there's no satisfactory solution to it lots of people have attempted it um certainly by the end of his life derek didn't think there was a solution to it
0: Mm. yeah it just might be that there are disjunctions you know qualitatively and, and with respect to value that um yeah, so, you, know, so you, you, get, you make yeah. the leap, you know, you make a leap yeah. and it's something is, yeah. something it, is lost yeah. or gained that is, you're not actually waiting, you're, you can't actually wait uh, smoothly. There's just, discount, there are moral discontinuities on the landscape. Somehow. Yeah,
1: that, that, that might be right, but there is the puzzle, the parallel with the bald man is, well, how can that be? I mean, if you're just, a cha- if you're changing something in a tiny, tiny way, how can mm. it go from a life that's valuable to a life that's much less valuable. When you're just changing some element to a tiny degree, how can a, somebody go from her suit to bald if you're just changing one hair? It seems to me a very similar kind of puzzle.
0: Yeah, well, strangely now, I'm, I'm no longer worried about losing my hair because it's just going to be one <laughs> hair at a time. <laughs> yeah,
1: I hope it's comforting yeah, for you.
0: I look perfect. Yeah, You've, you've cured me, doctor. Okay, so, so finally, this, the question of moral realism and, and moral objectivity you know, I, I'm in the embarrassing spot of not having read all of On What Matters, uh, or even most of it. And um, though I have a sense of what he was attempting there and how he was attempting it, do you think he succeeded there? What, what What's your sense of what he accomplished in that book?
1: Well, he doesn't satisfy his opponents. So it's three volumes. The first two volumes come out in 2011 and the last volume comes out just posthumously in 2017. I think together, they're 1,900 pages, and they had been circulating around the philosophical world for years and years, and dozens, scores of philosophers had commented on various drafts of the text. And I think very few people have actually read all three volumes. You're in very good company. Of course, Mm. I've, I've had to read them, but i think even the people who read on what matters um it was it was called before it became on what matters it it was called climbing the mountain mm-hmm. very few of them read it the book when it came out because they'd read earlier drafts and he he's trying to do two things the first thing he's trying to do is to say that three different philosophical traditions namely a form of consequentialism a form of kantianism and a form of contractualism that these three traditions are, to use his metaphor, climbing the mountain from different sides. So they're they're trying to get to the summit. They're all trying to get to the summit. They're climbing the mountain from different sides. When they get to the top, they see the same sunny uplands. So he wants to demonstrate that there's not as big a distinction between those three as we have traditionally believed. And then, as you say, his other major project is to try and demonstrate that morality is objective. And he feels that very, very deeply. And as I say, I don't think he has shown it to the satisfaction of, of the vast majority of his political opponents, but he feels it very, very deeply. He thinks that that there are moral facts, that if I say something like, it's wrong to murder innocent children, then that is a fact just like I this microphone exists, the microphone that I'm now speaking on. That, that that It's a fact that this microphone exists. And He thinks that if he can't prove that morality is objective, he thinks his life is meaningless. In fact, he thinks all our lives are meaningless, that somehow we lose meaning completely if morality is not objective. I mean, few people believe that because most people don't even know or don't even reflect on the idea mm. of morality being objective, and yet they carry on having meaningful lives. It seems a really bizarre claim of of parfit's to make but 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 he really really feels that very strongly and he goes around trying to persuade kind of important philosophers in the UK and the US and around the world that he's right about this and 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 he has a long running debate with another great philosopher that some of your listeners will will know about, bernard williams who's who's a mm-hmm. giant of philosophy but from a very different philosophical tradition and 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 williams writes um has a has a very influential paper on internal and external reasons. And basically what William says is that he imagines, a. again, it's quite an old-fashioned example, he imagines that a husband is treating a wife very, very badly. And you try and persuade the husband to treat the wife in a much better way. And you point out that he's making the wife unhappy and blah, blah, blah. And there's lots of very, very good reasons for the husband to behave better. The husband may endorse those reasons and come to change his behaviour. But if he rejects all those reasons, William says it's incoherent to say that nonetheless he has a reason to behave better. And yet Derek insisted that the husband did have a reason, whether or not the husband believed there was a reason to behave better. The husband had a reason to behave better. That reason mm. was objective in that sense. And and you know it's a kind of uh, it's kind of a running gag in the book. He's constantly. He's button-holding people and 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 telling them that Bernard Williams doesn't understand his argument, and he he becomes totally obsessive. I mean, the word obsession is a is a word that appears a lot in the book. He, he this is something he becomes totally obsessed about. That Williams's paper on external and internal reasons and trying to prove that Williams is wrong.
0: Hmm. Yeah, there's an adorable anecdote in the book where I think um, they're at a cocktail party and somebody sees. Parfit talking to a a woman who the, who they know really has no interest in or knowledge of philosophy, and he's it's talking the for wife. a while. Yeah, yeah, it's the wife. <laughs> it's the wife. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's 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 actually it's another brilliant philosopher called Sam Scheffler, and he mm. it's, it comes at, towards the end of Derek's life where Derek really didn't want to talk about anything but philosophy, and he would sometimes ring up in advance if there was a function to make sure that the organisers sat him next to philosophers so he didn't have to engage in small talk. And there's this sort of potential catastrophe when Sam Scheffler's wife at, at somebody else's retirement party is seated next to Derek. And, and Sam is just, you know, very, very worried about this because what on earth is she going to say to Derek? And he's, he watches this dinner party and he's am- amazed that across the table he sees his wife and Derek engaged in this animated discussion and it goes on and on and on. And at the end of the dinner party, he says to her, my God, what? what were you talking to Derek about? And he, she says, well, apparently Bernard Williams doesn't understand the difference between in, in, internal and external reason or something like that. Well, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah, it's actually, apparently Bernard Williams doesn't understand the concept of a normative reason. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I do think there's, there's a faulty language game being played here. And if you just drop terms like reason and should and obligation and the, the ought and is piece, and you just look at the world from above and say, what would be better and, and what would be worse if these terms mean anything? You can make objective moral claims uh, objective value claims. Whether or not anyone is motivated to navigate to those places on the map, they, the places still exist, right? So it would be better if he treat the, the world would be better if he treated his wife better uh you know he may be somebody who can't be motivated by the knowledge that the world would be would be better if he treated his wife better and the truth is even he would be better if he treated his wife better his life would be better he he doesn't it's objectively true to say of people that rather often they, they don't know what they're missing right you know and so there are people who are sufficiently selfish or sufficiently unaware of what is adjacently possible for them in in moral terms They're not motivated to live better lives, but it's still true to say that a better life is conceivable and would be reached by going left, whereas they're going right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I find this territory very different, very difficult. I think it's certainly the case that you can't cash out life's meaning purely in subjective experience. I mean, that seems to be clearly the case. That, for example, if if somebody believes they've got lots of friends, but in fact behind their Mm -hmm. back that their friends are not real friends, but are sort of bitching about them, or if somebody's partner is unfaithful to them and they're unaware of it, I think clearly one wants to say that their life is not as good as they think it is, even though it makes no difference to their subjective experience. I think Derek's got an example somewhere about somebody who is preoccupied with saving Venice from drowning, and after this person dies, Venice is submerged in water and Derek wants to say, and my intuitions are with him there, that that does reflect somehow on that person's life, that somehow that life now seems wasted, Mm -hmm. even though subjectively it makes no difference. That person is dead. That person can't feel disappointed because that person is no more. And yet we want to say that somehow we want to make a kind of verdict about that person's life and and think that the fact that Venice has drowned and that all their efforts have gone to waste reflects somehow on the quality of their life. So I, I certainly think that's the case, that, that we can make objective judgments about life that are over and above people's subjective experience. I don't think the idea of, I don't know, objective reasons, which nobody feels...
0: It's not a matter of reasons. It's a matter of the possible experiences on offer, right? It's just that there's this the set of all possible experiences individually and collectively. And what we have in moral terms is a is a navigation problem is it the question of what to do next you know and what what's possible given the kinds of minds we are and given given the way the world is and given the way our minds are what is possible for us and there there are right and wrong answers to those questions i mean there's certain things are aren't possible and certain things are possible and if they're going to be possible they'll be possible by making specific changes to the world, right? And this, this is you know. This, so there are answers at the level of the genome, and there are answers at the level of economic systems, and everything in between. So this is all a matter of having a fact-based discussion about how to navigate in the space of all possible experience. And I mean, this is this is all very relevant to Parfit's work, or or Parfit's work is very relevant to this problem because the repugnant conclusion is a is a wrinkle here, and, and population ethics is something that needs to be sorted out when you're talking about what makes the world better and what makes it worse but the place where i feel like most people get bogged down in discussing this philosophically is it strikes me as a an inheritance from the uh, judeo-christian religious tradition this this the idea that it's it all has to be framed in terms of obligation or oughts and the reasons for doing something as opposed to just what would be true if you did that something, and what would what will, will be true if you don't do that something? Whether or not you are available to be motivated by that difference, right? The the ought piece seems dispensable to me. It's like in the same way that I, I don't need to. Well, for instance, we don't get bogged down by by is and ought in the domain of logic, but we could. Like I could say, well, you really ought to when you when you add two and two, you ought to arrive at four, right? Like that—that's that you have a you have a logical obligation to recognize that two plus two makes four, right? We don't put it in terms of logical obligations. We just say that's the right answer, right? That's what addition is. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand the operation. Well, we could make objective claims about what would be better and worse. You know, killing innocent children is bad. Whether or not you can see it. If the word bad means anything, that's bad. And I mean, the, the simpler case for me is we could say that the, the worst possible misery for everyone is bad, right? And, and, and any state of the universe is better than that. If we ought to do anything, we should navigate away from the worst possible misery for everyone. And if you're going to say, well, maybe the worst possible misery for everyone isn't bad, well, then I, I, don't, know, I, I don't know what you could possibly mean by the word bad and it's just that you're not you're not i would imagine you're, you the person is just not tracking what the phrase means i mean worst possible misery for everyone it's as simple as you know putting your hand on a hot stove for as long as your hand can be there and for you know and and have everyone do that for to no good purpose without any anything good ever coming of it and having that subsume the entire project of conscious life for as long as that lasts right that's you know everything is better than that you know and that and so that's, that just seems to me if we can use words like better and worse and bad and good in any sentence we can use we can use them in that sentence in the same way we can use words like logical or cause or part and whole and other 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 concepts that we don't you know that we find conceptually irreducible. we we just we get bo- when we start talking about morality we get bogged down in ways that we don't tend to get bogged down when we talk about logic or math or physics and i just i don't see the reasons for our confusion
1: yeah I mean, as you know that the moral philosophers think there's a particular problem with the is is ought jump which doesn't exist in 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 other domains, but all I would say is that my instincts are with you and with Derek in the sense that i wo- I worry that if Derek is not right, that morality collapses, if not into nihilism necessarily into a kind of relativism that if if Derek is not right, then somehow it's open to people to say, well, this is right for me, yeah. and, and, and that's right for them, and never the twain shall meet, and that Derek is trying to kind of overcome that problem. So I understand his project. Um, my instincts are with him, and <laughs> uh, I hope he's right, but um, I think it was the least successful of his sort of philosophical arguments, and I think almost everybody in the philosophical, philosophical world agrees that mm. it's the least compelling.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, one day I will slog through the book because it's there on the shelf, and uh, the bald man paradox is ultimately going to be less interesting than whatever's in that book.
1: <laughs> Good luck. It's, uh, it's, yeah, you need to set aside. And Derek writes very, very clearly, Yeah, and, and he strives for transparency. He's not a suge in any way. He wants you to understand every single sentence, but it's it's hard work because it's nineteen hundred pages, and there are many many arguments. I mean, I find Reasons and Persons a wonder to read. Yep. But I spoke to one philosopher who said that um, Reasons and Persons itself is full of these hundreds of little arguments. And one one well known philosopher said to me that uh, reading Reasons and Persons is like being stabbed to death with a toothpick. And I can <laughs> I can I can see that, but. In that sense, On What Matters is much worse. You know, it's being stabbed to death with a toothpick, but but almost to infinity.
0: Yeah. Well, David, it's been a pleasure to, to get you on the podcast. I I should uh, tell people, I think I neglected to say this at the outset, you You have your own podcast where you touch philosophical matters, I think, exclusively, right? Or al- almost exclusively. It's Philosophy Bites.
1: Philosophy Bites, yeah. Philosophy Bites yeah. has been going, been going about 15 years now, since nice. yeah, 2007, yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, um Great to meet you uh, here and uh, hope to continue the conversation uh, here or elsewhere.
1: Really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Sam.